The way we power our society is changing. As we move towards net zero, we will see almost all uses of fossil fuels end. Wind and solar will supply most of the power that we use, either directly through the grid or indirectly through the production of green hydrogen. If we think of the energy transition just in terms of generation, then many technical challenges have been solved. But generation is just the starting point of the transition. Big questions remain. How will we move that green energy around the country? How can we overcome the challenges of the Duncan Flouter, or dark doldrums, when neither wind or sun are available for generation? Or in moments of high demand, such as the kettle moment, when during a World Cup, millions of football fans make a half-time cup of tea. And how do we give road users the confidence to rely on green energy, whatever they are driving and wherever they want to go? We need to think about how renewable energy will reshape the grid. We need new ideas on how that energy can be used in transport. That will require action by individuals, businesses and governments. We need to look beyond our own areas of expertise and understand how each of these challenges interrelate. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we're partnering with the IET, the Institute of Engineering and Technology, to understand the challenges of building a net zero economy. This November at the Crown Plaza in Glasgow, the IET will be bringing together experts from the power systems, electric vehicles and energy storage segments to understand what a net zero society will look like and the steps we need to take to get there. Each of those segments will be focused on three separate conferences under the banner of Powering Net Zero. All of the guests in this episode will be taking part in the event, giving presentations, joining roundtables or helping shape the programme. Together, they'll help us understand what each of these segments can learn from each other and how, by seeing the connections between them, we can start to solve some of the biggest questions surrounding energy transition. Professor Keith Bell is based at the University of Strathclyde, where he holds the Scottish Power Chair in Future Power Systems. He's one of eight members of the UK Climate Change Committee. Keith will be giving a presentation during the Future Power Systems Conference. He believes that much of our energy demand can be met by renewables. The cost of energy, the simple levelised cost of energy from renewables, especially from wind and solar, has come down dramatically over the last 10 years. So if you're going to build a new source of energy, of energy conversion, then the cheapest thing to do would be to build wind farms or solar farms. That might be the cheapest approach, but is it the most reliable? So, so, we, so we've got this conundrum, you know, with, with the whole energy system, that the demand will be what it will be, you know, it, it, we're, we're going to be cold in the winter, there's a certain amount of cooling demand all year round, uh, and, and, you know, more of it in the summer. Uh, transport needs, you know, vary around the year and through the time of day, but it's still always there. How do we meet that reliably? And that's where energy storage comes in. Energy storage will be the second conference of the three at Powering Net Zero. The ways we store energy are rapidly evolving. It's not as if energy storage is a new thing. We've been benefiting from the ability to store fossil fuels. You know, you can leave the coal in the ground or in a pile. Uh, you can leave gas in the, uh, you know, in, in the ground or in, uh, you know, storage vessels again, until you need it. Because it's not a two-way store of energy. Once you've 
burn the fossil fuel, that's it, you've used that resource, as well as emitting the CO2. Renewables can be used over and over again, but they're only intermittently available. Some of that energy must be stored, and we should shape our demand for energy around when it's available. Well, it'd be good if the demand moved to meet the availability of wind and solar. That'd be a first thing. And if we think about electric vehicle charging, that looks like a, you know, a great opportunity. Provided the vehicles are plugged in, you, know, you, you, don't, you won't need to spend the whole time charging the vehicle. You know, and the average vehicle is, is parked for 95% of the time. That's a vast pool of battery capacity, sat in parking spaces, garages and driveways. Other forms of energy storage will support HGVs and industry. And in principle, you can flex that to when the, the, the spare wind and solar power available. But you'll have days that are kind of quite still uh, and, and maybe quite dark. You know, in Germany, they call that the Dunkelflauter periods, you know, literally the dark doldrums. But we'll have other periods when we'll have a surplus. So we can use that surplus to make some sort of fuel that we can store and then use the fuel then to you know, be useful in meeting the end use of energy that needs uh, when, when it's not so wind, windy or sunny. And one of those is hydrogen. Renewable sources of energy must be spread across the country. If they were all in the same place, then all would be generating, or not, under the same weather conditions. But that then requires connections between multiple wind or solar sources, storage systems and end users. It's a, it's a question of how all these things fit together. And all, none of these resources have the perfect mix of characteristics in terms of ability to turn them up or down easily. We're going to have to build lots of, lots of transmission um, and lots of distribution network capacity as well because um, that end use of energy, you're carrying more across the distribution network as well as, as you electrify that end use of energy. Building that transmission and distribution network will take new technologies and techniques. Underground cables with an alternating current are actually quite, well, technically very challenging from, a, from an electrical point of view. So you, you can't use very long sections of underground cable. And undergrounding is, is very much more expensive than using overhead lines. That's the reason why we've got, you know, the majority of our network, vast majority of our transmission network is already overhead. But it will also require new thinking on planning processes. But maybe the biggest challenge for the transmission network is just getting permission to build it. There have been a couple of major overhead line developments at 400,000 volts uh, in the last sort of 20 years, one through North Yorkshire and another one through from uh, somewhere near Inverness to somewhere near Stirling, uh, where you know the planning inquiry them, it itself took a number of years and then construction is another sort of four or five years. One way to shortcut those planning constraints may be through local generation and storage. That could mean domestic solar and battery, or it could be something larger, such as a local industrial cluster or an urban community heat and power system. It makes perfect sense if you've got, you know, a convenient bit of roof space that's, that's pointing vaguely south. Yes, and solar PV is, is you know, relatively cheap as a, as a source of energy. Why not make use of it? But we, you know, we lack the economies of scale on all of that, as I said, so it helps, but it doesn't solve the whole problem. Uh, and it's variable, it's a variable resource. So we've still got to meet that peak demand for electricity. That sets the dimension of the distribution network, how big it needs to be. Across the country, new network capacity will be needed. The distribution network is a real patchwork. It, there's a huge local variation in how much spare capacity there is. 
you know, part of the distribution network historically might have been built for, you know, some kind of manufacturing, some factory that maybe has long since closed. And you look at it more closely and actually, oh, conveniently, there's lots of spare network capacity here. But in another place, there won't be spare network capacity and that needs to be, uh, you know, reinforced. Energy storage will help support that network capacity. As more and more drivers switch to electric vehicles or EVs, a vast distributed storage system will become possible. I think the big thing about vehicle to grid or grid to vehicle is the fact that you've got this energy store, this replenishable energy store. Um, and because it's electricity, you know, there's lots of ways of using electricity. It's, you know, so it's a very flexible means of, using, of moving energy around. I kind of had a, you know, a bit of a back of an envelope estimate of how much energy storage capacity there would be if we've got all of our, let's say, you know, a number of cars, the same as we've got today in the UK, and they were all EVs using the kind of size of battery that the typical EVs have got now. And that adds up to something like, I don't know, 300 gigawatt hours, 350 gigawatt hours of, of total energy storage capacity. I mean, that's a lot. The, the total EV capacity, potential capacity, is 10 times the energy of all of the pumped hydro added together. We've seen so far some of the technical and political challenges on the way to building energy infrastructure fit for a net zero world. But much of the innovation we will need will come from the private sector. Any private business needs to know what it has in stock and what it has sold. Every customer wants to know what they've bought and what they've paid for it. A bar manager will know how many beers she has in her cellar. A grocer knows how many bananas are left in his barrow. Their customers can see if they've got a full pint or check that they've been sold a full kilo of spuds. But the electricity industry does not have this clarity. Customers can't look at a battery and assess its changing capacity and level. Suppliers can't see if electricity is powering a television or being used to store energy for reuse in the grid. And that all makes it hard to set a price for electricity that helps balance supply and demand. Innovation is happening, but until the market is truly transparent, it'll be hard to send price signals through the market. But we're starting to see some of the retailers, the energy suppliers, offering more creative, imaginative kinds of tariffs. So, you know, smart tariffs where, um, for example, um, they'll, they'll give you the electricity much more cheaply if you use it within certain, you know, certain times of the day. And as we get more fluctuation in the residual demand for electricity, the difference between what's available from wind and solar and what's need, what's demanded, then, then those price signals in theory ought to start to come through. And that sort of thing should reward vehicle to grid. You know, hey, we'll pay you for the energy in your car battery. This will require innovation from new private businesses, particularly in the vehicle and energy storage sectors. Individual companies will often have ideas that can address the many challenges that remain as we build a new economy but they'll need support to turn those ideas into products or services, and those products or services into successful businesses. Claire Miller knows what it is like trying to get a new, innovative, net zero idea off the ground. 
I was the Director of Tech and Innovation at Octopus Electric Vehicles for four years. And during that time, I was a member of the management team that was founding the leasing business. So I learned a lot about how you build customer journeys and digital environments and systems for running a leasing business and for customers to spec their car and get that like, sent to them for their lease. And also uh, was leading the PowerLeap project, which was an Innovate UK project funded by Bayes, was then Bayes, now Desnes. Um, with six other members of our consortium to deliver a customer vehicle to grid demonstrator. So 135 fully working VTG systems installed with Nissan Leaf uh, and uh, that energy in those batteries that were stored being flexed uh, to support the grid and to give benefits to the customers. Today, Claire works as an independent consultant, helping other businesses turn ideas into reality. She's also a member of the organising committee for the Electric Vehicles Conference during the IET's Powering Net Zero Week. An efficient net zero energy market will need new physical components of renewables, transmission and distribution and storage. It will need new mechanisms for setting prices based on a digital model of how energy is generated, stored and used. Using what we've got right now and making better use of it and more smart use of it is really exciting, um, more short term, I would say, uh, kind of area where we already have quite a lot of cables and we have substations and each each street and area of a town and, and larger areas and that um, you know, are connected. But at the moment, they're not highly digitised. The UK's network operators, known as DNOs, know that they have a big task in front of them as they seek to build a truly digital energy system. One of those is UKPN or UK Power Networks. So an example I was given from UKPN is they have about 10% of their network is kind of actively monitored. And then they have other sort of less active monitoring and ways of inferring what they're doing. And so they're, they're very innovative in terms of the, the DNO world. And they're really working towards, well, how do we see, you know, inverted commas, like digitally see, how do we visualize what's going on so that we can actually know where there are restrictions, but also where we might have some oversupply. With the energy crisis taking a big bite out of customers' wallets last winter, energy retailers began to pilot ways of signalling when electricity was cheapest. People might have already seen that in the UK with the trials that went on over the last winter, where lots of the utilities and flex sort of startups and, and sort of new flex platform providers, flexibility providers, were offering um, rewards to actually turn down their use as much as they possibly can as part of a trial with National Grid. And I think that the response to that was really incredible. People were very engaged, uh, very competitive. There was a real gamification. Better data will allow more accurate price signals to be sent through the market. And those price signals will help individuals and communities, businesses and governments to understand where investments should be made. Electric vehicles are a key focus for Claire. She's already seeing ways the segment is innovating, making efficient use of energy supply and storage while still offering customers convenience. So there's some really interesting sort of solutions coming there around, well, if you put a battery next to a charger, then I can, I can charge that battery quite slowly. So I don't need a massive connection overnight, but I can still provide quite a fast charge or maybe it's a battery swapping station. So I've charged the batteries at one point and slowly, and then I can put them into a vehicle or a van. Battery storage can be used to make individual charging stations more efficient, but it can also be used on a larger scale in local communities. I think some of the most exciting um, community battery deployment I've seen is in Australia, where they seem to be embracing this concept of, oh yeah, there's a big battery like 
pack at the at the intersection corner of you know these these four streets keep in mind australia they have a really high penetration of rooftop solar so they have you know they have a lot of maybe solar generation in the day but maybe their cars aren't at home during the day so they're thinking about well if the cars aren't parked at the house when the sun is shining you can't use the car battery as a place to put the solar so yes a, a community battery it's a great idea community battery what a brilliant plan systems like this and industrial microgrids will help make sure that energy is available cheaply where and when it is needed. But they require significant investment. How can customers be confident that they will make a return on that investment? Some listeners will have heard of PPAs around like a power purchase agreement. They might have heard it in the context of um, wind, for example. So, you know, we'll build this turbine and we'll, we'll agree to give you this much uh, per kilowatt hour. And, and that will be, you know, that will be your payment over 20 years and that whole big project gets paid for. We're going to see that applied to, and we do see it now, to to car parks with big solar um, roofs, for example. So um, 3TI is a company that's active in that space, for example, like building out roofs over outdoor car parks to generate solar and then, you know, giving the owner of the car park uh, a, a, a guaranteed payment back for that energy. 3TI build their modular Papilio 3 solar charging and storage system using recycled shipping containers. The company recently conducted a demonstration project with the University of Surrey. New approaches to charging and storage like this will help keep customers moving, and new battery technologies could help cut costs and improve efficiency even more. There's different flavours of battery. So lithium-ion is a really interesting battery chemistry. It's becoming, you know, it is the most common technology. We're moving from NMC to LFP, so so slightly different chemistries, moving away from chemistries that have cobalt and towards that, that LFP chemistry. But we're also starting to see sodium ion batteries coming. I've actually seen the first sodium ion propelled vehicle on the roads in, in China. So BYD have just brought that to the market. We'll definitely see sodium ion batteries coming to the roads here over the next few years, which don't have as high energy density, but but but, but perform you know brilliantly well. and are cheaper and safer because they, they don't contain um, rare metal. New battery technology will also be needed to support local clusters and grid level storage. And then at a larger scale, there's, there's different um, chemistries, different approaches. So things like flow batteries, which are much, much larger and need a much larger footprint, but actually you know, they're, they're, they're longer duration storage. And if you have a warehouse and you've got space beside your warehouse, you may actually have, have the space there to have a, a different scale of battery that you can flex now one of my favorite I, I, my colleagues will tease me but i really like these kind of iron air batteries and sort of rusting process which uh, is, is a, a way of storing energy by enabling or, or kind of putting putting a current across uh, the battery and allowing so sort of the iron elements to sort of rust and then then kind of recover um it's not the same as rusting in, in you know out in the fresh air but it's this is the, the terminology for it These new battery types offer improved storage, but many drivers can't plan their day around a break for charging. Yeah, there's a company based out of China, which is coming to Europe called NEO. NEO have a passenger vehicle and a battery swapping station. So that's, they bring the, the, their vehicle and their battery swapping station. And the concept is that battery swapping station is connected to the grid. So it's a grid balancing asset of all the individual batteries they, they store there and charge there. And as a driver, you can drive up and they swap your battery and you drive on again. There's another battery swapping concept, 
which I'm really keen on, one of the startup companies I'm involved with called OnCharge, and that's thinking about battery swapping for vans. OnCharge are looking at, okay, how do we help those businesses that want to decarbonize their fleets add an extra battery onto those vans? So actually a swapping at the beginning and end of the day in order to pick up enough uh, battery pack with enough charge to recharge the vehicle so that wherever that vehicle needs to be overnight, uh, it can be, be charged up ready. Another way these heavy road users can avoid the hassle and delay of plugging in is by not needing to plug in at all. The other technology that, that isn't plugging in is wireless. So wireless charging, there have been a few goes at wireless, lots of pilots, lots of sort of trials. We've just seen Tesla have announced they've, fin- they've sort of finalised their acquisition of a company in, in Germany that have a wireless technology. It's not production ready, but it shows that Tesla are getting serious and interested in wireless. Ideas like this can again be used to support grid balancing through V2G or vehicle to grid storage and to make sure that everyone is able to charge their car even if using a heavy charging cable presents a challenge. But there's a a UK company that's one to watch in this space which is Electric Green and they have a really interesting concept for again for fleets of vans for depots that are are quite tight where you can't get plug-in charging and also just a guarantee that you can always charge and in, in the future, discharge those vehicles. So you can do sort of V to G with the vans as well. You always be plugged in. You haven't got to remember to plug those operational assets in at, at a depot. So that's quite interesting. And then also for drivers with reduced mobility, you know, it won't be for everybody. It might be very high end for individuals, and but there will be individuals that will be a huge game changer for with, they won't have to handle the, the plugging in. So yeah, so battery swapping and wireless, I'm really excited, it's very early days. And you'll hear about it at the conference. Each of these ideas will help make electric vehicles and energy storage cheaper and more efficient. But how can we measure supply and demand in the network accurately so that prices can be set and varied appropriately? In terms of knowing how much storage is needed and how much energy is available, then we already have some of those systems in place. They are becoming increasingly digitised. And... Uh, there's some interesting and, and really important work going on right now in, in, in this sphere. Certainly some of the re- the results and sort of observations and findings coming out of the work of um, the, dig- the Government Digitization Task Force, which was led by um, Laura Sands. So really worth having a look at that. And then some of the regulation that's coming out around some of the devices and, and technologies around this. So things like the smart charging regulations around home EV charge points. Those insights will help guide investments and the decisions we all need to make about how we use energy. It's all well and good asking individual households and businesses to get involved and, and be more switched on and think about smart grids and how they you know, how they get involved in these sort of automated services and, and to help the grid and to help themselves and, and to get reward. But, um, but thinking about how we measure what's been used or what hasn't been used is a, a real, um, it's a really interesting area at the moment. And thinking about what constitutes a meter, inverted commas, is, I think, the next most sort of important frontier. With more efficient metering, energy companies will be able to collaborate to build a national digital twin. This will allow them to shape the large-scale investment the country needs. There's important work going on to model the grid and model the assets that are on the grid. So National Grid um, are leading work to build a digital twin of the grid, which means actually bringing together energy users, DNOs, the whole kind of community to bring their piece of that twin for them to build their piece because 
as we become increasingly digitized and increasingly connected, being able to model that and to predict effects and understand what needs to be built next um, is going to be really important. Pricing is important to anyone producing, selling or using energy. It's also important when we buy long duration physical assets. The value of the asset will decline over time. If we buy it in anticipation of selling it later, we must understand what its second-hand value will be so that we can judge whether the original price is fair. There's another interesting company uh, that I think anyone thinking about EVs and thinking about, well, okay, brand new EVs, great, but what next? What about the second-hand market? There's a company called Clearwatt. So Clearwatt have been thinking about what about the second-hand market and what about, you know, individual customers who want to buy a second-hand EV but are not experts? How do we help educate them, build confidence in the market? And what can we do, therefore, about the battery and thinking about confidence in the battery? Clearwatt is looking at giving confidence in the battery based on how it performs now and how it holds its range um, over a series of test drives. The innovations we've looked at with Claire will help shape a new distributed grid and speed up the adoption of electric vehicles. But storage is needed too, on a much larger, longer duration scale, on the other side of the meter or charger. Building that grid scale storage will require investment from both large private businesses and support from government. The US has led the way in this public-private collaboration with two huge spending bills that will help shape and support the energy transition. Hoi Jackson has had a first-hand look at how the country is reshaping its grid in her role as Director of Clean Energy Technologies and Policies at the Edison Electric Institute, or EEI. The EEI is a trade association representing the country's electricity companies. Hoi will be taking part in a panel discussion during the IET's Powering Net Zero Week as part of the Energy Storage Conference. The size and buying power of EEI members has seen them lead the way in deploying longer-term storage in the US. Well, in the United States, uh, electric companies have led the deployment of energy storage and have driven advancements in energy storage technologies, making them more, re more efficient, reliable, and affordable to a wider range of customers. Since the inception of storage technology, Electric companies have been deploying and operating pumped hydro, compressed air storage, and thermal storage for decades. Uh, beginning in 2019, the deployment of battery storage has grown exponentially in the United States. Uh, this surge is largely attributed to electric companies investing heavily in battery storage. This is a trend primarily driven by the growth of renewables. So currently, electric companies are investing in long-duration energy storage demonstration projects. As of December 2022, our member companies owned and operated 93% of the total energy storage capacity in the United States. That was 32 gigawatt. And no doubt the number will grow this year and in the next five years too. In 2022, the US Congress, after much discussion, passed the Inflation Reduction Act. The ostensible aim of the act is to reduce the US federal government deficit but the tools it uses to do this include significant tax breaks, which will support the development of a net zero economy. The passing of the Inflation Reduction Act, or IRA, has in its first year helped boost new steps of investment in energy storage systems. We observed the various applications 
uh, from the generation side, uh, combinations like uh, wind plus storage, solar plus storage, or the trifecta, uh, wind plus solar plus storage, have dominated deployment in recent years. However, since the IRA was passed, we were seeing an increasing number of standalone battery storage. California and Texas, they are leading the energy storage deployment in the United States. Uh, California accounts more than 50% of the total energy storage in operation in the United States. But Texas is the fastest growing market. Uh, from 20, 2019 to 2021, they grow almost like 10 times. And then from 2021 to 2022, they doubled. Uh, 2021, that year, deployed you know, a little bit like one gigawatt. Until 2022, they're over two gigawatts. As U.S. electric companies look to develop large, long-duration storage, they're beginning to look beyond historic and current technologies. For most of the history of our industry, pumped hydro was the predominant energy storage technology. And there are nearly 22 gigawatts of capacity in the United States uh, as of today. So over the past three years, lithium-ion battery storage has been the fastest growing technology. Uh, with approximately 12 gigawatt currently in operation in the United States and a five-year forecast of 89 gigawatt to be added. So most of battery storage projects have duration of one to four hours. The, there are a few uh, eight-hour projects in the queue. Um, in the near term, lithium iron is likely to dominate the short-term duration energy storage deployment. The U.S. Department of Energy, or DOE, defines different storage types according to the duration of storage they offer. Longer duration storage, intraday, multi-day, and seasonal, will require new technologies, neither pumped hydro nor lithium-ion batteries. The development of these technologies has been supported through another large-scale program of federal government support, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. This is commonly known as a bipartisan infrastructure law as it implemented policies with at least some support from both sides of the aisle before the thorny discussions that were needed to pass the IRA. For longer duration energy storage, like I mentioned, the DOE definition 10 hours and beyond, we see more innovations in various technologies. A few of our member companies have invested in iron air batteries, while others are exploring other cutting edge technologies such as thermal and liquid metal. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure law allocated 505 million in funding to help commercialize long-duration energy storage technologies. This is a very exciting moment for energy storage. Government support like this helps electric companies deploy innovation where it is needed by customers. When we talk about innovation, um, innovation should be driven by customer needs. Um, for lithium-ion battery storage, we anticipate increased deployment both in front of the meter and behind of the meter applications, uh, enhancing system integrability with different inverters, bolstering safety and resilience, and optimizing end-of-life recycling or areas that require attention. For longer duration energy storage, priorities should be reducing capital expenditure, uh, improving round-trip efficiency, and ramp time and ensuring first-of-kind demonstration projects are delivered on time and under budget. Uh, it's including future operation and maintenance uh, expenses too. So how has the IRA helped the country achieve such a rapid transformation of its energy systems? 
IRA offers a 30% investment tax credit or ongoing production tax credit for both standalone and, and um, co-located battery storage projects. And there is also the 45X credit is a new production tax credit for domestic components related to solar, wind, batteries, and the critical mineral components. So these incentives promote investment in domestic manufacturing. It has also helped ensure a just energy transition. The aspect of the act is known as Justice 40 and aims that 40% of the overall benefits of certain federal investments flow to disadvantaged communities that are marginalised, underserved and overburdened by pollution. It will help all consumers make low-carbon investments. The Department of Energy provides funding to support energy storage, especially long-duration energy storage demonstration projects, research, and for uh, disadvantaged communities such as uh, Justice 40. So there is a, a projects between national labs and uh, um, research institutes, so they collaborate together to, to achieve the goal. Uh, on the demand side, in Inflation Reduction Act extends tax incentives for EV purchases, heat pump installation, and the residential solar and storage systems is definitely driving the growth of energy storage solutions. On both sides of the Atlantic, governments agree that much of the innovation the energy transition needs must come from the private sector. But even the biggest businesses can't make open-ended bets on new technologies. Governments can help them innovate by taking on some of the risk of implementing well-advanced ideas. It is important to emphasize the industrial demonstration project uh, program funded by both the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. So the program received a combined 6.3 billion in support of advancement of transformational technologies necessary to decarbonize the industrial energy sector, such as long duration energy storage, hydrogen, carbon capture utilization system, and advanced nuclear. So the program typically operates on a 50% cost share basis, less significantly mitigates the risk associated with uh, pioneering technologies. DOE had dedicated 15 million in funding to both the National Consortium for the Advancement of Long Duration Energy Storage Technologies and the National Consortium for the Advancement of Hydrogen Technologies. We've seen how future power systems, energy storage and electric vehicles will all have interconnected roles to play in delivering net zero. During the IET's Powering Net Zero Week, running from November 14th to 17th, specialists in each of these sectors will be able to learn and find new ways to collaborate during dedicated conferences. Claire has been supporting the IET's organising team as they develop the programme for the Electric Vehicle Conference. With these types of events, what I love is when the agenda starts to come out. So that so, you know, it's a draft agenda. It's you know, it's always sort of building towards the event. But you can start off, start to like plan your days, and you can think, well, can I make it to that one? And I can move across, and I can be there. And I think the great thing here is that you've got all of it running all at the same time, and so you have that opportunity to actually, you know, design your own experience. There's so many great people going to be at the event. So I would encourage people to think outside of their stream, like even if you're 
very, very squarely into that world of, you know, for EV, for example, and, and take a step back, check out the other agendas, have a look at the speakers um, and challenge yourself to go to sessions that you wouldn't normally put yourself in. It, it is easy, I think, sometimes to fall into that comfort zone of I'm working in X, there's a talk on X, I better go to X because it's my thing. I'm sure you'll meet lots of people that you know maybe or that you would you know kind of get along with and that's great but challenge yourself to go to sessions that you would never normally go to because um you know you don't know what that's going to inspire in you and what that's going to spark and it's sparks like that which will help power us towards a net zero economy engineering matters is a production of Reby media this episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by John Young and Ross McPherson. And the meter that measures all of our output is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, the IET, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn 